Sandos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Monday, Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher. The Bucks are 5-0, and and we've got a lot to talk about ETSU's win over the Wofford Terriers. We certainly need to talk a little ETSU basketball. we got to talk Southern Conference football, a lot to go over. Bold predictions recap, which I was very close in two, and I got one. I don't know what Mike did. Probably 0 for 3 would be my guess. That's what I'm talking about. Another dub for me. All right, talking about dubs. Boy, ETSU, Wofford, and it is humanly impossible to win a conference game by more than one score. And there's several things you could point to and where it looked like it was going to be a drub fest early. And I think it started with, and I know everyone's going to go to the blindside block. Terrible call. Let's start here. The actual pass should have gone to Noah West who was 20 yards down the field with nobody around him. And if he throws it to West, there's no blindside block. And Dr. Coach Sanders afterwards was like, well, yeah, I mean, we could have scored twice, but probably, you know, the play there is to look deep then short. And West was running, so then you don't put West in a situation to make a block because he's going to walk in the end zone. I mean, the guy that was guarding him come crashing down on the beautiful play-action pass. And he comes back, does the blind side, and it's the second time ETSU's had a blind side block that has cost them a touchdown in a big situation, a game that ETSU lost. But fortunately, this one, the game they won. But guys are just going to have to learn. You just can't peel back and air hole anybody for no reason. And I don't like, I don't like the rule in general. I do like, okay, you're not allowed to decapitate people. But it was a shoulder-to-shoulder hit. It wasn't the pure ear hole where the guy didn't get up or he didn't do whatever. Which then I'd understand because, like, okay, absolute, it looks bad. You might have hurt a guy, but um, he stayed on his feet, stumbled a bit. It oh, was, it was, you know, it, it's a rule put in. Um, it's also the weird calls that happened, and I was a little nervous because that was the same crew that had the Furman game last year. I don't know. Shocker. So, it was a couple of things that I got a little nervous about, but that went from what would have been 17 nothing. then ETSU goes for it on fourth um, and doesn't get it. Uh, eventually, go fourth, don't get a turnover on downs. Then the untimely interception. And Wofford, I'll say this, their plus 50 offense, basically inside ETSU territory offense, was ridiculous. It was creative. They did some matchup problems. They did... I mean, caught each issue off guard and stuff, but once they were on their side of the 50, it was very unimaginative and shocking how bad they really are. But give Wofford credit because every time ETSU made a mistake, whether it was a bad punt, which the punting game was horrific, uh, the interception, which I think, uh, and Coach crushed Rydell for making a throw. Me and Robert just thought the way he was rolling stuff, like it's just unaccounted for. Like it was, he didn't see the guy there. The guy made a nice leaping play. Probably a little throw still, but it was one of those, like, and I know the quarterback's supposed to count for everybody, but it just felt like he didn't expect that guy to be there. And it happens. And then ETSU gave up the first points off turnover this season. ETSU's defense did not get a turnover, so ETSU was able to sort of overcome that. But the defense did hold Wofford to 0 for 8 on third downs and 0 for 1 on fourth downs. So the defense was still phenomenal. Um, they gave up three plays that I, that I think was 116 yards. So that means 
the other, I don't know what they run, 60 plays, 45. They only ran 45 plays. Yeah. The other 42 plays got 130 yards. I think he'll take that all day long. And it was a little tighter than I think everyone would want, but Wofford only had 21 minutes with the football. They've got some real, real, real issues, especially talking to their radio crew. Um, but I thought ETSU had a chance to blow them out. Didn't. But, again, sort of like 2018 in a different way, where ETSU kind of invented weird ways to win. They did football things to win. And the play calling by Randy Sanders was as on point as I can remember oh, being on point. So good. I can't wait to ask him about it in the press conference today because – the reverse to Will Huzzy on the third and long. Now, earlier in the game, there was a third and long. The Bucks ran it, I think, with Sailors. And I was expecting then it's like, you know, right in that middling territory. Granted, Tyler Keltner could make, a, I think it would have been like a 45, 46-yard field goal, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, not probably a little bit longer because I think they ended up punting, if I remember right. But it was like fourth and four. And, I, and you expect on a third and long if they're running it, that's setting up going for it. I guess Coach Sanders is trying to catch Wofford off guard and stealing a first down. It didn't work. Um, but then you run it in a more creative way, and I thought the breakdown of a postgame was interesting when he said, I can't remember what member of the offensive staff it was, but they suggested to me that we use this play they saw in the NFL. They thought it could work for us. And he goes, looks at it, breaks it down. I was like, oh, wow, I do really like this. And had been kind of waiting for – that play and also waiting for the screen pass that ultimately ended up being the decisive score, the 77-yarder to Quay Holmes. Been waiting to bust those out and wasn't sure if it would be a third and long when he would run the reverse to Will Huzzy, but absolutely brilliant. And misdirection type stuff. This is not the Wofford defense. I think you would probably agree that we have known. Um, the odd thing is they're really good at defending the pass this year, at least statistically, entering the weekend. Uh, now Tyler Idell pokes some holes in that 70% completion percentage, 268 through the air. Second time he's been over 250 in two weeks after not doing that at all previously in his career. He did have the interception. I think that is kind of a one-off, as he said. I just don't think he saw Isaiah Wadsworth. Um, but so the timing of that, that the defense may be in the past, and if they weren't as injured, quite honestly, because they were missing Michael Mason, who's all-conference up front. He didn't play. Miles Richardson their starting strong safety didn't play. They're decimated pretty much across the board. I counted 13 guys, and those are just the ones that uh, are were either listed in their game notes <laughs> as missing or guys that uh, would have started that day uh, that were missing. Um, so just a ton of guys that, that are out on both sides of the ball. But regardless, a defense that is not as stout as it once was to be able to throw some misdirection at him, give him the unexpected, and then, you know, essentially with that Quay Holmes screen going away from the Huzzy uh, run a little bit, do what Coach Sanders did against, was it UVA Wise, the 64-yard Jacob Saylor screen, blitzing there was Wise, caught him down the sideline, touchdown, Wofford blitzed, Tyler Idell held it for that extra split second. You know, got a little bit further back, held it for that extra split second. Tavon Matthews, a, couple, a big block. Joe Schreiber, a big block. Um, you're absolutely right. Throughout the game, it was really good, but late on, it was even better. I thought because he got the timeout on that third down, and we didn't really specifically ask him, did the timeout help you set that up 
on the reverse just to make sure everyone's on the same page. It's a play they repped starting on Monday, so certainly I don't know how much you would have had to have gone over it, but I think maybe that timeout was also an opportunity to say, okay, guys, here's the play. We know what we're doing. And I thought the play was made by Jawan Martin, first Huzzy, who's not a natural tailback, right? Showed great patience to wait, and then I've raved as much as I can about what Jawan Martin's meant to the offense when you have a true selfless fullback. And I really wish he would have had the 32-yard touchdown reception so he had four times his career yardage on one play. But I think him being able to seal that corner was was a play that wouldn't have happened last year, even in the spring. It wouldn't happen in the spring. And I'm not knocking everybody they, they tried to makeshift fullbacks with. But Juwan Martin, there's just a fullback's a special breed of people, I think, because they just – I mean, even um, offensive linemen, you know, I, I think they don't get enough credit, and that's why we've gone out of our way to mention – you know, the fact that Tavon Matthews got the first block, and then Schreiber, 30 yards down the field, gets a pancake. Um, and then, of course, Quay Holmes got home run speed. I thought it was interesting, too, when he talked about the play calling, that he wanted to run the screen, but, you know, it wasn't either the right yardage. It, w- it was too close to a hash mark, which I found interesting. <laughs> and that shows you what type of level of – when you've called plays for 30-some years, maybe you know, 20-some if not 30, you're sitting there and you're going, I need something to be on a specific spot and I know my 170 plays that I'm going to call this. And I think it is incredible when he, when Coach Sanders gets in a rhythm and calls plays because you can see, obviously, why he's been tasked in the SEC and ACC to be coordinators to call plays. I thought it was also awesome to see Tyler Rodell, who has the ability to use his legs, get creative on one drive where – he ran at it laterally for a while, then ran at a defender to make the defender choose. Am I going to take right L? Am I going to stay with my receiver? And he Brilliant. dumps it. Then the next time, he just gives the short little pump fake. Everybody backs up, and he picks up another 8 or 10 yards. So I, I think his creativity and the comfortability, and again, he's he's got the right mentality, and you have to, right? If you throw an interception, you're not down on yourself. You just go back to work, and I kind of felt that's – what Tyler Rodell has been able to do. But those back-to-back plays that led to the, the touchdown I thought were incredible and creative and just shows you sort of um, how much confidence he has going in the off. And I think listening to the guys talk, I don't think there's any more question of is Tyler Rodell going to hold on to the starting job. I think – and I think that went out the door last week clearly with the game that he had. The only thing I would say – about the pass game I was shocked by was when Wofford did decide to go man-to-man on verticals that each issue did not have a completion down the field that way. Now, they did get a deep crosser with Huzzy that barely got tripped up at midfield, I think, for 22 yards. And if, if Huzzy kind of stumbles out of that, he scores. The play that Wilson, Isaiah Wilson hurt his knee, if he was able to you know, you know break a tackle on the sideline. But I thought Rydell on other than – I didn't think he threw – too many bad balls down the field. He threw jump balls that receivers got their hands on. They just weren't able to make a play. So I'd be curious to see how many teams maybe just go straight up man um, in some long down situations and just try to make ETSU make a play. Uh, and then, you know, Isaiah Wilson's yet to make it a full season healthy, and he goes down a bit. So we'll have to see is Cavallaro going to be the guy? We did see Julian Price in for a play. 
So, and I thought it was funny. We were focusing. As soon as you ran out on the field, uh, I think me, Don, and Robert all were pointing. It was kind of funny. We we're all kind of pointing it out at about the same time. Hey, Price is on the field. And then we're like, all right, here's a chance to get another speed guy. You get verticals, and that's what they were. And then they ran the screen pass, and I thought it was brilliant. They ran them all off, you know, and then ETSU was able to execute. But I thought Rydell was uh, great again. I thought ETSU offensively, you know, 468 yards, and they had a couple things where they had the touchdown call back where Huzzy's backside did touch the ground, which uh, Preston Cox, our our sideline, Wireless camera guy happened to have an angle of that. Otherwise, I don't I don't know that they would have overturned it. So great job by him getting the shot. Yeah, thanks, Preston. Um, yeah, I know. Trust me, he's in my class. I've already told him he's getting an F. Um, and then uh, um, and then you have the blindside block. So some things, but offensively again, ETSU was able to to do a lot of things. They were able to stay pretty balanced again. They were able to do things that Coach Sanders wants to do. And to me, that's encouraging. And I do agree, it was not the Wofford defensive old. Uh, but I do feel like when ETSU needs needed to turn it on, they did. And every time they needed an answer uh, or the sort of the backs against the wall and you're not sure how the game's going to go, ETSU has been able to do that. And I think that's a great sign because that's something, again, we've not seen out of the offense. And, again, I'm, I'm going to say it again. If ETSU's offense can get to 24 points, I think they're going to win every game. And the defense held to 21. The offense got to 27. A missed field goal, two touchdowns it could have been. And, I mean, it could have been 35 or 40. I can't think of last time we're sitting here talking about, you know, ETSU legitimately could have had 38, 40 points on the board. You make a great point about Tyler Idell towards the end of that first half. I don't remember who the linebacker was, but you have a rush for two yards to Sailors, and you've got the clock ticking, go out of bounds, gets the second down and eight, and – then you have Rydell move left and just sucks in that linebacker just enough to float it to Sailors and get the big gain down towards the red zone. And then just two plays later, Rydell, as you said, uses his legs. He's starting to become pretty adept, especially at that part of the field, of knowing when to use his legs. And then, of course, Jacob Sailors uh, with, what was it, uh, about 20 seconds or so left, gets into the end zone, and ETSU goes in up 17-14. to 14. There's those two plays you mentioned, the blindside hit, which, again, I think was – the completely wrong call. Um, Will Huzzy was down. It was very, very close. Uh, but a matter of inches there between a drive that I don't even actually remember what ended up happening on that drive. They did not score. So you end up. Both of those plays, the, the blind side and the. Because you went for it on fourth down right. with the blind yep. side and didn't get it there. Correct. So that's two touchdowns that were on the board for a second and then gone. Uh, it was very, very close to being, you know, 31-7. to seven. And I say seven because that's a throw that Tyler Idell, if he could just pull it back into his right hand, not have made it. And I think 99 times out of 100, that would be the case. I'm not just saying, oh, we'll just take it away. Well, I think that his decision-making, had he seen the guy, now you can't just change history, right? But uh, that's not a play he often would make. 31-7 to seven at the half and the game's over. Right now, that's not how things went down, and Wofford did look like the better team for you know probably about half of that first half. Um, so it could have easily been a blowout. Josh Conklin said before the game that Wofford missed out on some big plays against VMI, didn't convert in the red zone. I think they certainly rectified those issues, but you can see that they still have problems defensively giving up the big play, and that was his other criticism of his team. And it's quite clear that when you have 
a team like ETSU and, you know, give VMI credit as well. They obviously have their own offensive behemoth going on. And we'll talk about in our SOCON recap how that was kind of silenced a little bit by the Citadel uh, in the military classic of the South. But uh, they obviously have some unique things offensively that they do that can confuse and hurt opponents. ETSU has just an incredible play caller and who's really finally coming into his own, I think, because he has the entire playbook available to him because he feels like his players have gotten to the point in understanding and comprehending and skill-wise are there to be able to run the whole offense. It's a combination of obviously that being Coach Sanders, the incredible play caller, and the fact that the tireless work that those that have been around the program for a number of years now have put in to understand the playbook and grasp it and be able to run plays that you put in the week of, like you did with the Will Huzzy reverse and you know, know what really makes a play go from the 10, 15 yards to the 77 yards like they did with the Quay home screen. And that's something that Coach Sanders has talked about time and time again over his few years here. Now, what is it, his fourth season here at uh, ETSU? He said, we've had some plays. This was a common theme in, I think, the first two years of the program, if you remember from post-game interviews and the coaching show. We had some plays that could have gone for 50 or 60. Well, they went for 15 or 16 instead paraphrasing, of course, and whatever the distance may have been, but now those plays are going for 64 to Jacob Sailors, 41 to Will Huzzy, 65 to Isaiah Wilson, 77 to Quay Holmes, and that comes with, I think, the little fine details that maybe the guys just did not quite grasp, understand, and even if they did grasp and understand, they maybe didn't realize why they were so important and why it mattered that they did those things the right way, how Coach Sanders wanted them to do those things. Now that they understand that, not only grasping the playbook, grasping what Coach Sanders is trying to accomplish, but also why you can really see the difference offensively. I want to give kudos to the defense because we haven't talked about them much. And you mentioned the number of plays Wofford ran. Keep in mind, one week earlier they faced 111 plays, and Coach Taylor told me Thursday he thought it was actually more like 120 I think he may have been factoring in um, plays that were, I guess it wouldn't have been plays that were wiped out by penalty, but he, he, he came to 119 as opposed to 111, which was the official number. Well, yeah, yeah. well, if it's an offensive penalty, he would be right because you play a down so and you back plays, up. So in total plays, you don't so yeah, factor in you don't, penalty plays as well. You don't because okay. it, that play didn't happen. Technically it got wiped right. out. So if that's what he was counting it as, that's more than two and a half times the plays that ETSU faced this week. And we mentioned – and I think this is an obvious point, but one that was worth talking about and now revisiting. How does the defense not only psychologically respond, but also respond in terms of scheme, pace, and going from one extreme to the other in a span of seven days? And I thought they did so exceptionally. Yes, take out you know, some of those big plays that Wofford hit right after uh, either a bad punt or a turnover, right? Because I think the... Uh, the bad punt led to the Derrick run and then the short touchdown from Mulligan in the first half. Then the interception led to the Holt, uh, or is it opposite? It was uh, Mulligan's was on the interception and then the long pass and then the option touchdown run were after bad punts. Yes, so the still two drives, taken there. Two of the three drives were one play. I mean, they were very opportunistic. Uh, and the other one was offense. three plays. Correct. So five plays, they had three touchdowns. And I think that, as you mentioned, Josh Conklin was getting a bit creative with that offense. I think it was a great time to. Now, why they didn't do more of that, I don't really understand. I think I got that, a lot more questions on that, but it's their problem. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, when 
you sense that there's a momentum shift as a play caller or a coach. You want to grasp that, right? You want to catch lightning in a bottle. And they did a couple of times. But I do wonder why that was not more prevalent in the offense. But give ETSU's defense credit because it could have been 31-7 at the half. Uh, this could have been a complete blowout, even though it wasn't. And the defense gave up a couple of plays that you know were 40-plus that ended up in touchdowns. The entire day, if you look at it in totality, for 98% of it, they were lights out. And again, I know you can't erase history and change the big plays, but considering all the ground that they had to cover from last Saturday to this past Saturday, perfect effort, I, I thought to encapsulate what they have done this year. Um, they're going to be here for the long haul, and I think they showed that against Wofford because, yes, while they were missing a couple of offensive linemen, the Terriers, they were missing their top receiver, um, and the running game hasn't necessarily been what it has been in the past, at least to this point. Uh, it's still a tough task to go out there and stop a team that's beaten you for the better part of 25 straight years. I, I think what was impressive, too, if you look at – the first nine drives for Wofford, they had 23 plays. Now, they had three touchdowns because, as you said, the one-play drives and then one three-play drive. They only had one drive of over three plays in their first nine possessions, and it was five plays, nine yards gain. Wow. And when you get in the fourth quarter and you're going, okay, Wofford ran seven, seven, and eight plays the last uh, three drives, well, the defense had only seen 23 offensive plays going into basically the fourth quarter. Or I guess they saw the drive started in the third. I guess it was, so if you only do the fourth quarter, they saw 15 plays. Saw 30 plays in the first three quarters, average of 10. They saw 15. I mean, you want to keep a team fresh and be able to run around and make plays. And Wofford did try to go a little quick early. We did get information right before the start of the game that um, Jimmy Wyrick lost his thumbnail on his throwing hand on a fourth down play against Wofford, and then the Wofford radio crew said they soft-tossed it to Coach Conklin about how tough Jimmy Wyrick is. It would be a nice, easy thing since they went to practice and Jimmy looked like he was going to be the starter, and Coach sidestepped it, and maybe sidestepped it because Jimmy couldn't go because of the thumbnail, or was it, are they roping open their own crew? I don't I don't know. Um, they had some interesting things to Say well on, some on that point because Coach Conklin did talk about the thumbnail in his press conference earlier in the week. Wyrick came back after that, and now he did say that he missed some throws that he usually would make, and he thought it was because of that thumbnail. But he still played the rest of that game. And, and so, I wonder if that's a dr or because he had played, he didn't want to pull him out. I mean, there's a lot of you could go with. He was our guy at the time. They were leading, I think, when that happened. So didn't want to make a decision, didn't want to go. Also, if you just watch tape of ETSU hemorrhaging yardage everywhere, maybe they wanted a little bit more of a dynamic thrower and then just try to run the ball. But, again, they just they didn't. You know, they tried to go a little tempo, which isn't their game early. That didn't work out well for them with some three and outs. And so then they went a little bit to the – to the ground game on their five play drive they at least were able to go basically two backs a glorified fullback dive with a lead blocker out of the shotgun and get a first down and thought okay well there's Wofford and then it just went back to 
throwing the football. I'm still very confused on what their identity is. I don't think they know what their identity is. I was very impressed with how they made ETSU pay, and I thought, again, we've, we've both said it, it was creative, too, on how they were able to get those plays and get odd numbers. But uh, all the rest of the offense looked awful. But give, I mean, Watford, if you look at every single stat and no score, you're thinking he got ran out of the building. Yes. And then you turn around and look, and Watford had a shot driving down the field. So give, I mean, I, I'm, I want to give Watford a ton of credit because if ETSU made a mistake, they're still got a championship pedigree with a bunch of guys that were on the team in you know, 2019 that won a championship that at least remembered, hey, we can, we can win, we can play. Now their margin for error is much greater than what it was maybe in 2019. They certainly, certainly don't have a Joe Newman that could just make some crazy plays. But for the most part, when VMI gave them an opening, they took advantage of it. And when ETSU's given them an opening, they take advantage of it. So Wofford, although I don't think they're going to obviously contend for a championship, but I think they're certainly going to give some teams some fits if they open the door. It seems to me, having watched that game in its entirety on Saturday, that they're trying to do everything on offense like they want to cover the entire gambit of what has been revealed over the course of football history that has been effective offensively and I think that there's temptation there and I understand it if you're Josh Conklin and you see what you're walking into and the success they've had and you say okay well that's great, and we can keep doing that. Let's keep doing some of that. I, I want to have my imprint on it, though, too, and imagine if we can do that that well and then throw in this other stuff. Oh, that's going to take us over the top. We're going to win national titles. Like, I totally understand that line of thinking, but I think it's fallen more into the basket of rather than improving this offense, it's kind of undermined it. And instead of being great at one thing and then maybe not being up to par at other things, but doing the one thing you do better than anyone else, you've now got yourself in a situation where, yes, the offense can do multiple things, but they're just okay at all of them. And that's something that you can see is just not going to work. And I think you can see for um, lots of teams, you know, if you're just okay at a bunch of stuff and you don't have your calling card, it may not be something that's going to be sustainable or even successful in the moment because what are they now two and seven in the calendar year after making four straight FCS playoffs on 2019 by the way uh, Tyler Keltner missing that field goal so fitting at the end of the game to make it a one score game the Bucks have now played 13 straight conference games that have been decided by one score and the last one that they didn't was Wofford in 2019 that Joe Newman game four first half touchdowns 35-17 Terriers uh, also I don't know if you were able to fact check this or not but you mentioned the no third-down conversions. I don't think people are going to give credit to just how rare that is. First time since football's been back that the Buccaneers have not allowed a third-down conversion. And keep in mind how many Division threes, Division twos, NAIA schools that ETSU has played. So that was a truly special effort. And I think some of it does come down to Wofford still trying to find themselves and what they're going to do in certain situations on the offensive side. But also, Billy Taylor's defense, and we shouldn't be surprised, answered the call. I think that's uh, I think it's a, the bounce back the defense needed. And, yes, I know there's three plays they're all going to look at and go, what, what in the world breakdown happened here? But 
overall, I think you have to be pleased with the defense. And, again, no matter how it happened, I think if the 24 less, I'm still going to go with that. And I think uh, given all the poor field position, and Wofford actually had better field position on the day. I think they averaged around their own 35-yard line. ETSU was at its own 27. So even so, with the field position battle, the three short fields they scored, I mean, it is what it is. And if the offense and the punting game doesn't turn the ball over in their own territory, it's going to be very difficult for teams, I think, to go and attack ETSU. ETSU's still only one, right, double-digit win in SOCOM play was VMI 2018. So they're still looking. They've lost a couple by more than one score, but they certainly still only have one conference win by one or more score. And Tyler Keltner just wanted to keep the people happy and make sure the 10,153 stayed there to make sure they watched the very end. A lot of people say that that was the loudest they had heard William B. Green Jr. Stadium. And it makes sense if it's the biggest crowd, but, I mean, that was a big, big day on a number of different fronts. And when you're able to put a record crowd in a stadium when you're setting out to do the last thing that your program really hasn't done yet, and that being defeating the lone SOCON team that you haven't after being back in the league for five years, um, it seemed like one kind of fed the other. I think the fans seemed to understand that it was a huge day, and then the fans seemed to pass along the energy and uh, everything that they needed to to do their part, showed up, did their part, and over 10,000. That's I, I'm not sure if people outside these walls that we are in every day understand, like, Yes, they've seen on social media and such, but, like, that was a big number for a lot of people. <laughs> there were three teams that broke 10,000 in the Southern Conference. As you would imagine, VMI stood it up because VMI takes all their key debts down to the game. So there was 12,001-something, 167 or something like that in the VMI Citadel game. Mercer had a special promotion going. They had 11,000. Well. And then you're talking ETSU, which I, I don't know how Mercer gets 11,000. I don't want to call shenanigans, but I've seen the stadium. I'm just not sure where all those people go. But 11,000, whether it was or wasn't, they got the five figures. That's incredible. ETSU got there. And the worst attended game had 8,700 people, which was Chattanooga. I mean, to me, that's an outstanding weekend for Southern Conference football. One, I can't remember a weekend where three teams – in a long time now, I can remember, you know, the App State, Georgia Southern, Marshall-type days, and, you know, it wasn't unusual to have, you know, five, four or five games hit that mark. But for, you know, recent Southern Conference football, I can't remember a weekend like that. So, we'll, we got a lot to cover on the Southern Conference. There was some entertaining games, some interesting results. We'll give you our thoughts on the Southern Conference this past Saturday. But this time out, I'm saying a sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fund. So 
SoCal County football. How many people in stadiums then? That's like 40,000. Solid. For four games. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. It, I mean, obviously talk DTSU and Wofford, 10,153. Let's go to the least attended game first, I guess. I mean, I know you'll love to make fun of Chattanooga fans, even though 8,700 is a pretty stout number. But. Uh, it's Yeah. And the, the one thing about their stadium, you know, they built that stadium to host the FCS National Championship, which they do, and it hosts soccer. So it is a huge bowl stadium where you really can't get down on top of people. And the first camera shot, I thought, man, there's not a lot of people there. Well, then they showed the other angle, and me and Robert were watching, like, holy cow, that's a great crowd for Chattanooga. And I wasn't willing to guess what the crowd was uh, at that time. And But then when I read later, you know, over 8,000, 8,500, something like that, 8,700, whatever it was, it was a solid crowd. And, you know, and they were treated early to a lot of offense from the Chattanooga Mocs. Yeah, it was sure. absolutely enough to push the Mocs to the victory. Four-score win, 45-17. to 17. I now have a new theory, by the way, for who's making the lines for the Southern Conference in Las Vegas. You know, David Zerlinski, former GA here in Sports Information, now works at Chattanooga, so we definitely hate him at this point. But he said the Mocs were going to score exactly 45 points on Saturday. So that on Thursday. And I think there might be some shenanigans there because clearly that's just a bit – too exact. Uh, that's exactly what they did. And you thought it may be a game that was a little bit closer than others. I thought the same. Uh, turns out Western is who we build them to be before the year rather than the team that we thought they could be going into this weekend. Tremendous balance for their offense. 271 rushing yards. Lim Ford, Geno Appleberry, and Tyrell Price all going between 79 and 82 rushing yards. And Cole Copeland didn't play too bad. 17 to 29, 239 in the air and two scores. And meanwhile, for Western Carolina, Rogan Wells, your favorite transfer quarterback into the league, goes two for 11 for six yards and throws two interceptions. Yanked for Carlos Davis, another transfer for the Catamounts that came in before the spring and saw very limited time. He comes to Cullowee from East Mississippi Community College. Got that offense on track a bit, 225 and two scores, but by that time it seemed like it was essentially too late. The Mox had 21 points in the first 12 minutes of game actions. The Catamounts could never recover. Quarterback controversy in Cullowee. While Cole Copeland seems to have solidified his place above Drayton Arnold for the time being, with Robert Riddle still sidelined. I think uh, Wells will be fine. He'll be the starter. Davis was a guy that went in the spring. They really liked the way he threw the football and thought he would get the starting nod. I remember talking to Daniel Hooker at Western Carolina, longtime SID, ESPN3 play-by-play guy, and he raved about watching Davis throw and thought he had a shot to – win the job last year and just didn't get a lot of action. The game turned 14-3. Chattanooga's up. They kick off and Western takes it to the house. And it was we were in the pregame show so I watched them, took it to the house and we were just going to come out of break and I was like, hey, Western's going to make a game of it. It's not going to be a blowout. And then we get through the next segment and I look and Western the touchdowns off the board and they're in their own territory and they throw an interception and all of a sudden it's 20 to 3 or whatever it is and you're like okay it's over it was that quick uh that that a 419 mark it went from feeling pretty good about you know hey 14 10 you know in it could battle a little bit to it not going well and chattanooga you know knew sort of the defense in the run game is what they want to do 282 yards on the ground Three different guys with uh, solid numbers. We know about the Lim Ford. We know about Tyrell Price. But Geno Appleberry got a couple of carries. Matter of fact, one drive was all him. He had a long, I think it was, yeah, 35-yard uh, scamper. Got tackled at the two. I was wondering if they're going to let him score it. Next play, they did. They handed off to him and he scored. 
Uh, Ford's still your lead ball carrier with 16, but, I mean, they're going to – similar to ETSU, they're going to pound the football. They're not going to ask too much out of Cole Copeland. I mean, they know that defense and running game and control line scrimmage is what they want to do. So, I think Chattanooga has, ever since the Austin P game where they got dominated up front, I think, and then how good of a showing would that would have been if they could have hung on in Kentucky considering Kentucky – beat Florida. I guess the big thing for me out of this game is that while they may not ask a ton out of Cole Copeland, 29 pass attempts, I mean, that's a decent amount. And to go 239 and two scores, that is more than I thought he was capable of coming into this game. And you can say what you want about the non-conference, not really showing you a ton about who a quarterback can be, what a team is going to be, and maybe that's true. Um, and let's also qualify it by saying this was Western Carolina, and we know that the weakness – for them is their defense. They've been horrible stopping the run forever, and this year stopping the pass, they're not going to be any better. So don't want to overreact and say, well, clearly Cole Copeland is the answer. He is someone that's going to be able to carry this team when the run is not working. He can go over the top for 250-300. I'm not saying that, but he showed at least against teams that Chattanooga should beat, specifically what we expect to be the bottom team in the league, that he's going to be able to do enough to keep the offense rolling, moving, and doing what I think everyone around the league would expect them to do, not having any slip-ups while they go through the SOCON and contend for a Southern Conference championship. But let's make sure that we also investigate Chattanooga and David Zerlinski for fixing games. Okay, the <laughs> Citadel and VMI. The Bulldogs 35, Kedad's 24. It's a hill that VMI just can't seem to climb. And granted, VMI has been bad forever, and the Citadel has been good forever. And the roles now seem to be flipped, but even with the Bulldogs, not the team we once, once knew, they take down the Cadets in Charleston and have now won 13 of the last 15 Military of the South battles. Some alarm bells went off for me, and I know you love looking at this stuff too. When the line opened with VMI by two, that seemed to me like way too little, and generally you see a spread from the odds makers that you think is too good to be true, and it usually is. And that was absolutely the case on Saturday because three minutes in, Jalen Adams hit Raleigh Webb over the top on the first play of the Citadel's first drive, 80-yard touchdown, punch right in the gut of the visitors, and probably what hurt even more is that it was one of just four times that they threw it all day, one of two completions, but it was a tone setter, and Adams controlled the tone and the tenor all day, 25 carries, 188 on the ground. Logan Billings added 112 more in the rushing game. Neither man lost yardage the entire day. The team ran for 363 yards. Meanwhile, on VMI's side, Colin Ironside started the game at quarterback. And so my thought was instantly when I saw Ironside throwing in the first quarter that Seth Morgan was unavailable. But instead, he comes on after nine relatively ineffective pass attempts by Ironside. 20 of 30, 208, a touchdown, two interceptions. So Morgan back after missing last week with a concussion, I was surprised to not see him start the game if he was available and instead they go with Ironside and then have to quick pivot when Ironside was in effect. Yeah, I thought, you know, I read some stuff there talking about how Ironside seemed to have more upside than Morgan, which is, I don't want to say it's laughable because certainly I haven't watched, I did watch some VMI this year, but you, we saw Morgan up close and personal. And again, to me, that's usually a good sign that your system's coming around when you can sort of plug-and-play, at least that was my thought, but maybe it's not as easy as a plug-and-play. And Ironside maybe just caught a little bit of lightning in the bottle early. Um, 
it's obvious that Coach Wachingheim has somebody to get. I mean, if one guy's not playing bad, he's now not going to be bashful, I think, about putting the other one in. I think, like most coaches, you want to play one. If the guy's playing great, go. But if somebody's not playing real well, the numbers aren't there, then I think he may go uh, to the bullpen. And so we'll just see how that plays out. Has Morgan not done enough, though? I mean, comes in last season in weird circumstances, having to replace Yudinsky and leads that team in the latter half of the year to a conference title. Has he not earned the right, even being injured for a week, week and a half? Like, you have to have some perspective if you're Coach Wackenheim, right? And who am I to question the national coach of the year? But it seems odd that you're going to instantly off a week, week and a half. You don't like the Wally Pip, huh? Because the Colin Irons, <laughs> I, Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, you can't have that overreaction as a coach. You and me can overreact like that. Your average everyday person can overreact and say, oh, look at Ironside last week. Didn't miss a beat. Well, what about Seth Morgan when he led you to a conference championship? Like, that to me, as, as Seth Morgan, I would be a bit offended and upset. Now, if you're at VMI, if you're at any military academy, there's no real room for that. So I'm sure that he's going to lock back in, be fine. But uh, I was very shocked by that move, and I do wonder, because that seems like a move to me that would divide a locker room a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking too much into it. Uh, yeah, I think you probably are. Right, I well, think. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if, if there's ever a group of guys that is a next-man-up mentality that I can't imagine that you're built for your feelings being hurt is probably going to be at one of the academies. No doubt. Uh, I do think that I am in agreement I would caution in Seth Morgan. So I don't know. Obviously, the concussion, if they want to take an extra week to make sure he's all right or didn't pass or whatever, understandable, certainly. Um, now the safety health standards with the team doctors and the concussion, they're probably not going to roll him out there. Maybe even take an extra I mean, we saw Sam Houston State sit their quarterback not because he had concussion, but because he had had two targetings and two late hits. and uh, So four times he has been hit uh, either late or targeted in two consecutive games. And they said, you know what, we're going to sit him this game and just make sure that he's okay. And he could have played, and it was a lot of controversy. And Sam Houston ended up winning by one. So the coach was able to sort of thump his chest a little bit, like, hey, we held the kid out because, my goodness, he's taking these hits. He has not had a concussion but he's taking these hits, and we want him for the long haul. And so we'll do what we got to do because we're going to be in the playoffs. We're going to do it. And I, I, so what you're telling me is Coach Wackenheim did that exact same thing, but when he saw things going bad, he said, oh, I better get Seth back in there. I don't know if he was cleared last week or not. My Come guess, on, Sando, spill the beans. My guess is is that he probably was not, and Colin Arnside was given a chance to play. And this week, obviously, Seth Morgan, I believe, clearly cleared. He played. And Colin Ironside did not get off to a good start. And it was a the first, I think, three or four possessions, Citadel scored. So at some point, I think, go with known more than unknown. And I think that's why the decision was made. I'd be curious. I didn't see exactly if it was the fourth possession before uh, Colin Ironside or uh, Seth Morgan came in the game. But my guess is that it probably was. Well, certainly I think that it's Coach Lockenheim saw things were going bad and put in. Seth Morgan, but I think it's funny that you would make the comparison to Sam Houston State because that implies to me that then you're thinking that Scott Wackenheim tried to be the hero like the Sam Houston State coach did, but then said, uh-oh, can't lose this game, and now i got to go back and you know do what I didn't want to do, and now I can't be the hero, and I, I, don't, think I, don't, get to, I don't get to look like the player-first coach. 
I think you're giving me way too much credit for thinking <laughs> any of that. <laughs> thinking in general? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, Mercer over Sanford, 45-42. to 42. This was the one that you and me said would be the game of the weekend, the one we were most interested to see in terms of you know unbiased opinion looking from a fan perspective at the SoCon. Uh, there's really one major storyline out of it, and it's that Mercer can run the ball and do it pretty prolifically. Fred Davis set school records with 276 yards on the ground, five touchdowns as well, over 500 yards of total offense for Sanford. But as we discussed Thursday, was it going to even matter if the Bears could stop the Bulldogs' offense? It did not because they didn't, and they still won. Liam Welch, 381 yards of total offense and five total touchdowns. Jay Stanton, over 100 yards on the ground. But it was Davis that stole those headlines and the glory from Welch and Stanton, averaging 10 yards per carry. Took only 28 carries to get 278 yards. It was all about him. Interesting to see the Bears using Carter Peavy in a couple of situations. Once in a trick play where he threw it to Fred Payton. Once where they 52 were, yards, by the way. Once they were in a clear passing situation on a third and eight, they brought in Peavy. Payton's more of the runner, Peavy more of the thrower. Outside of that little oddity, though, a game I think that went about as we expected. The only thing I'll say is both of us Thursday weren't sure if this one went to the stratosphere of offense that it did, up around 90 combined points if Mercer could have won a game like that. But with Peyton being pretty steady and being more of that running threat, and I think maybe Mercer identifying that that's where they could have their most success, uh, they were able to put up 45 points. And they've now won six of their last seven in the SoCon. Can we just go over the comment again that Coach Hatcher is fine with his defense? I'm just – I get more and more baffled by that the more the season goes along. I know he's an offensive guy, and he's maybe just telling his team that. But his defense in the last five possessions without taking a knee to win the game. I'm going to read this for you. Touchdown. 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 I see where this is going. Touchdown. Mm. Touchdown. Oh. So the last six possessions, right, of the ETSU game were scores, and the last five possessions of the Mercer game, except to take a knee, were scores. Mm. At some point, they may want to accidentally tackle somebody or force a turnover or something. But, yes, Fred Davis, I watched a little bit of the second half of that game just when I got to the house, and, boy, Fred was running left and right. I mean, he man, he was averaging – when you average 10 yards a carry and get 28 carries, you know you're doing something right to begin with. But, you know, it's a lot of Mercer smoke and mirrors and going. But the, I'll go back to this, what I said before the game. The confidence that the team seems to have and on the sideline and the buy-in and everything that you want from a new program, a new coach, he is getting that, Coach Chronic, Drew Chronic. And it is unbelievable what he's been able to do in a short time at Mercer. And this was – for us, no judgment on either team going into it. I just thought we would learn a lot about either team. And what I learned is, is that Mercer, not a fluke from what we saw in the spring. Nope. And number two, Sanford's still Sanford. They're going to score a lot of points and be entertaining. And it's going to come down to some exciting finishes. But, boy, they just can't get a stop ever to win a game. They went four for four on third down. Or, sorry, fourth down. Four for four on fourth down. And despite that miraculous occurrence, still not enough. So Mercer stays undefeated in the league and a couple of impressive wins, I have to say, with that 24-3 win over Furman two weeks ago and then the 45-42 win over Sanford. The Citadel with 
an impressive effort. There's no question. And it was interesting to hear Coach Sanders say post-game, talking about the Citadel and last year, he thought that was the one team that kind of manhandled ETSU up front, out physical the Bucks. And so coming in off a win, it's going to be a confident group. Jalen Adams obviously with a bit of a homecoming, and he'll be looking to put on a show in front of fans that will be here to see him from uh, his childhood growing up here and uh, want to see him do well. And a Citadel team that last year made it close against the Bucks, as every Southern Conference team does, keep in mind, but uh, that Coach Sanders had some interesting things to say about. So big win for them. I think I called it on the ESPN Plus broadcast what is likely to be, uh, I didn't say easy game against the Citadel, but I kind of looked past them onto that Chattanooga game when we were previewing upcoming schedules, and I don't think that's something that you can do now, especially with the effort they had against VMI, and then, of course, Chattanooga reestablishes themselves, I think, uh, make sure people know that they are going to be in this one uh, until the end. Well, next week's going to be a huge, I think, separator because other than Mercer going to Western, which I think Mercer's not, with the way they run the ball, is not going to have a problem. But what is Furman? What is Wofford? Their rivalry game is that Saturday. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about this Thursday, but just a quick glance at the schedule. Furman, Wofford, who's really who, right? Then you have VMI, who are they at home, versus Chattanooga. I'm excited for that one. And so is VMI going to get back in the hunt for a championship with a win against Chattanooga, or is Chattanooga going to push VMI aside because Mercer's going to win, they'll stay undefeated. If Chat wins, they're undefeated, and then that leaves ETSU Citadel. And so if ETSU at home best Citadel, three teams are undefeated. The rest are going to have some multi-losses here. I mean, because Wofford's already got two, so if they beat Furman, Furman's got two. Furman can kind of stay in the hunt if they beat Wofford, but I, I'm just – it's going to be – now you get in the league, I love this, because now every game's starting to take shape and little storylines within storylines. Well, and to your point about VMI, you lose this game. I think this league this year, and you can feel free to offer up a different opinion, but I don't think you're going to win the title with any more than one loss. I don't, so I I don't believe there's going to be the weird four-way, two-loss – deal working. I think you're out of championship contention, especially this early if you're VMI and you lose at home this week to Chattanooga. I'm really excited for that game. That's going to be an exceptional game. And, and so will Furman Wofford, quite honestly. And I mean, is ETSU going to ever beat anyone by more than one score in conference play? I mean, that has potential. And I even think Western Carolina, I know I was wrong this past week, I even think Western Carolina has a potential to be a good game against Mercer. Now, they beat Furman on the road, the other purple team in the conference, by three touchdowns in their league opener. So I could be wrong again there, but quarterback for Western Carolina is going to be interesting to see how that unfolds with Wells versus Davis. That could change my opinion as well. But I think all four of these games are going to be great. Again, we can talk more about it. All right. right. I'm excited to talk about it on Thursday because I'm excited about Saturday. All right. We're going to shift gears a little bit from football to basketball because today is the first day that ETSU men's basketball team is allowed to practice for the 2021-2022 season. More on that after this time out. Sandoz Sidekick, Buccaneer Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you.
Sanders and his sidekick back with you talking ETSU basketball this morning, 8.30 on a Monday, men's basketball. First practice. This used to be a bigger deal. I'm not saying it's not a big deal, but the fact that they can start practicing in July and they get 20 hours, they get four. This is not the big a deal as it used to be for teams. Still, the fact that now they're practicing just means that we're 40 days, give or take, away from the opening tap of the season where ETSU will be on the road at Appalachian State. Yes, we'll get a chance to see them home before that one exhibition game, but November 12th, first game, App State. So what uh, Mike decided, and I thought it was a brilliant idea, is that we would come up with our five. And I don't know how you want to do this. Oh, you got your five. I don't have any. Oh, just my five. This is yours. Yeah, oh, okay. Your, uh, your show, your buddy. Okay. All right. I will, I will tell you what I think. Opinion, okay. Well, I will give you my five, and you tell me. I'll just say it. You. How about this? I'll say yeah. it. You give a quick opinion, and I'll give you my thoughts. Okay. I had a little blind game Great. here with Mike. I'm going to go the coaching chemistry. Sure, and I think that this maybe comes from seeing how Coach Oliver has run practices a little bit early on. It's a little bit different than how Coach Forbes and Coach Shea, who obviously come from the same line of thinking, have been around a long time, around each, each of each other, and had their own way of doing things. It's a bit different down there um, this year. Uh, so – that will be, I think, a very compelling one as we move towards opening day, simply because establishing coaching roles, I believe, is almost as important, and unfortunately the Bucks learned that the hard way a couple of times last year, as it is establishing on-court roles for players. That was my thought process was, after watching last year, I had not put a lot of thought into first-year head coach having to balance being a first-year head coach and then what responsibilities does he take, does he give up, does he expect his staff to take. Now, they've all sort of worked together at some point in time and knew each other, um, but never been on the same staff, so didn't really. So I'm curious, because of last year's start, how the coaching chemistry works on what, you know, in practice I've tried to watch, but certainly in a game. You know, who's in charge of substitutions, who's doing this, how does the, the guy's got the scout interact, how does what is Coach Oliver, you know, is he just sort of managing, is he more of an NFL-type head coach where he's just kind of watching the offense and defense and not calling both ends, is he calling one end? But all that stuff, to me, is, is the first thing I'm curious about. The second thing I'm curious about, kind of same line, but the team chemistry. Yeah, and I think that the nice thing this year, and this is something that – Last year, I'm not sure, with so many guys being together on a game court for the first time, because we can say what we want about, you know, Ladarius Brewer, Tamar Monsanto being around the program. They weren't allowed to play in games during the 2019-20 season. So they were feeling each other out, and there was a lot of talent on that team last year. Uh, There were a lot of people that were trying to fit in you know, and see what they were going to do, how things were going to be successful and tweaking along the way. And it seemed like the, you know, first half of the season, things went pretty well. If you look in the grand scheme of things, I think the Bucks won six of their first seven conference games. And you're like, wow, this is with all of the turnover that they have had from one season to the next, one of the most impressive things that you can find across all the country when it comes to teams contending at the division one level for a conference championship as the Bucks were. And then, things for a variety of reasons, um, started to spiral a bit, right? And I think part of that was some individuals not necessarily um, 
fitting their roles the way that they had, being comfortable with their roles, uh, some behind-the-scenes stuff that... Some point envy, shot envy type stuff. And when you've got a lot of talented players on a team, that's bound to happen. Unfortunately, it came around at the worst possible time for ETSU because there was a lot of other stuff that was going on, too, around the program. Um, The nice thing this year, Ladarius, Ty, Sloan, Adeke, your main core four, and there's others back as well, but I'd say those are your main core four. You've got Bonnie back, too, right? Um, and you've got Charlie back. So that, I think, is a strong nucleus where everyone that's new, and there are a lot of new players, will look to them and say, okay, we fall in line behind this. They are going to do things how we all need to do things. You have an almost perfect mix of about half the team back from a year ago. The one thing I would say that probably helps is that there's a whole new system, so the six guys that return are not quite the incumbents quite the way they were, right? Everyone's got to earn. So curious to see how that all works, rotations. That that leads me into the next thing, which is the new style of play. They want to go fast and super fast. And I think that's going to be um, an adjustment process in itself. Interesting how you look at the – Adjustments that the players that are down there in terms of leadership and roles are going to have to make. You see it more as everyone's newer. I see it as we've got, you know, the six back, and we should, you know, do things how they want to do them. They've been around the program, but it is a whole new coaching staff. So, as you can tell, even as we're having this conversation, right, there's going to be differing perspectives around the program, within the program, of how things should go. I think my idea is, in terms of the intangibles, you have to follow the returning leaders. In terms of the on-court stuff, in terms of the roles on-court, that is all going to be a work in progress and to be defined. So um, tempo is one of those things, you know, and and I think that will also dictate a lot of who's going to see the floor this year, too, who plays the best. The one thing I like about it is that ETSU is always generally, if not the most athletic, top two at worst case three every year for the last 30 years in whatever league they've been in. And when you have those type athletes getting out in the open space, open floor, really excited about what that could lead to. And obviously there's a little bit of, you know, well, yeah, you read about Buckyball and all his stuff. And, uh, yes, there could be some bad, right? Sanford football, we've talked about that. Great. Fast break on grat. What do you do on defense? So it's not just fast, new tempo on offense. How do they handle defense getting into those transition to get those shots? So style of play, more on the offensive end, of course, because it's just it's going to be different what they did the last several years, even with Coach Ford. I can't think of a coach because Murray Barto wasn't wide open. Ed DeCella certainly was not. I guess that you would have to go back to Allen LaForce early days, Les Robinson, you know, Mister and all those teams are probably the last wide open floor team they had. So – Offense, sort of the theme here, as you'll get, but three-point shooting, if I can channel my Andy Jackson here, three-point shooting, I think, will be an interesting concern this year. Yeah, uh, no question, and I think that, you know, you look at last year, and Ladarius and David shot it well um, from beyond the arc. Ty has had his issues, I think, in terms of efficiency, um, scoring the basketball, um, whether it's from beyond the arc or 
inside of it, 31% from outside last year and got off to a really, really tough start outside of like a, what was it, a one-minute stretch where he hit three threes? Uh, Down in that first turn. That's right, right. Yeah. yeah. Outside of that, I think he was like one for his first 24 from beyond the arc. But um, obviously, you know, Silas is your big guy. You know, he can step out and shoot the three, but only did so once last year. It was that UNCG game in overtime, which essentially acted as a nail in the Bucks' coffin in that final regular season game. Bonnie Patterson is not going to be someone that's going to shoot it from outside. Charlie Weber is someone that can stretch the floor and, and do that. Um, and then you've got the three that we just talked about. Sloan and Ladarius are probably going to be your leading three-point shooters. And, and then you have Ty, who can do that as well. But because of the start he got off to, you know, the stats don't look great from last year. Though, again, take out the rough start in the last two, two-and-a-half months, he shot it pretty well from outside. Um, that's a game-changer. I think it comes with tempo offense too, right? Like you – are going to play up tempo. You're going to use some of the uh, mathematical, analytic type things, new school uh, style of play that tends to employ a lot of uh, outside the arc um, success. You know, and if you don't have that, then the style can kind of flounder. So with uh, those two, Brewer and Sloan, to me, you only really need you know one or two others, and then it comes down to you know who's going to fill those roles to be able to stretch the defense. Yeah, and I think Jordan King's going to be one. Um, for a career in two years at Siena, three, 36% from outside. Um, he's going to give him more of a green light. This is the one thing. This is a green light shooting team. Um, coach has encouraged the big men that can shoot it to shoot it. So Silas will be taking a few more threes. Now, if he goes 0 for 10 start the year, might not be asked to uh, take more threes. But certainly, they're going to be – the big men will have an opportunity to shoot. I think Alan Struthers, when I've been able to see him, you know, how's that translate – over, uh, I think certainly uh, Mojave Yassir, how is he going to do? I mean, every big guy in the drills that they've ran has got a spot on the floor from three where they have been given a green light to shoot the three. So it might be a situation where, yeah, you've got two, three guys that are your three-point shooters, and then maybe is it a situation where six other guys combine to take ten of them, and can you hit four or five of them? And it's not necessarily four, five, six three-point shooters. You've got two or three you can bank on, and yes, somebody's going to have an off night every once in a while, right? It always happens. But is it a situation where you can make up some of that? Because I feel like that's the one thing ETSU last couple years have had a ridiculous three-point shooter, and then a couple of guys that could hit threes, but there's just not been two or three threats at the same time that can hit threes. I thought last year, especially towards the end of the uh, – well, the middle of the year, when Sloan and Monsanto and Ladarius Brewer, that was about the perfect scenario when all three of those guys are shooting well enough from the outside and then you're getting enough inside. I don't know – I think it's still Sloan can do it. I think Ladarius obviously can do it. Jordan King's proven it. Whether they get a fourth guy that can really fill it up from out there or if it's by committee, but I think that's been a struggle for ETSU the last several years. And, again, I'm not saying they've not had great three-point shooting games. They don't have a guy that can't fill it up. They've just had a lot of games where they've struggled to get multiple guys in the same game to hit from the outside. And in today's game, I think that is important that they have that. Last one I'll bring up is uh, community support. If you want me to start on that, I will. But I will. No, I mean, I 100% agree. This is, 
I guess, quote unquote, the elephant in the room, right? That, you know, people don't often talk about openly. Um, but absolutely, it's going to be a storyline this year. It'd be stupid for us to ignore it because we've talked about everything that's gone on with this program over the last year or so on this show many times. And uh, will the community be back in droves of, as they have been in the past with, I'd say, one of the biggest, most controversial events of the last, you've been along, around longer than I have, but um, and certainly in my time here, the biggest. In your time, I would guess it's top two or three in terms of things that have surrounded this program. So um, where does the community stand in terms of supporting this program? Um, I know where I stand. I know you know where you stand, um, but it's an individual thing that, uh, you know, 6,100 seats in Freedom Hall will be affected by this year. I think, obviously, the season ticket holders, the fan base, the ones that don't renew their season tickets, right, they made their choice. I think the ones that bought season tickets have their choice. Your Buck fan, all in, or Buck fan, eh, I'll wait and see on these guys, whatever it is. The question will be, we just set a new attendance record in football and community comes out in droves. My question is, I think ETSU is still not going to have a problem getting 4,000 people in Freedom Hall no matter what. The question is, how many times can they, will they get to a sellout or how many times will it be 6,000-plus? And to me, that will tell. And, yes, winning cures a lot of things, right? It's the unfortunate world. Whether this is the issue or not, winning brings people out. I mean, 10,000 people don't happen if ETSU isn't off to the start, let's just be honest. I mean, we've ran – every promotion and similar promotions every year. And we've gotten to 9,000 whenever, but we've not gotten to 10,000. But when you're 4-0 and you're playing a team you haven't gotten and people are excited about the game, you get, you get there. ETSU basketball's had a lot more success. And so I think uh, it will take less wins to get a packed house than it probably took football to get a packed house. But certainly that'll be my big thing to watch. It's not – the normal fan base. It's not the grandstanders that just took shots that weren't fans of ETSU that just wanted to take shots at ETSU and just wanted to say whatever they wanted to say. It's the ones that were coming to games, you know, and buying the single game, big game tickets. How do those fans respond when that time comes? That'll be the, the curious part. It's not the fan base. I don't I don't I don't think that's we're not saying that. We're not saying the alums of ETSU. We're saying the community that would like they did last game, that people were calling randomly, like, hey, I've not been in an ETSU game yet. Where I get a ticket? Are those fans going to come? That's my question. Well, and some may listen to this and say, why can't we leave it in the past? You know, this is not important for this year. This was a 2020 2021 thing. This is a new coaching staff, a lot of new players. The reason it's important to me is because the one thing that separates ETSU from every other mid-major school, save, you know, the Grand Canyons and, you know, the incredible fan bases out there that um, have risen to, you know, Power 5 levels. But schools in this conference, if we're talking about the SOCOM, what separates ETSU? The fans. The support. The atmosphere. So that's why, to me, this is big. And if the fans aren't back to the extent that they have been in the past, then I do think there are going to be ripple effects, you know, within the program in terms of, it may even be the quality of kid that you can get, you know, and the level of player that you can have come to ETSU, and, and that could be a great equalizer uh, because you know that other schools out there uh, are reminding recruits on the recruiting trail of all of the things that have gone on, you know, within this program 
um, and the community over the last year or so, because that's just kind of the cutthroat nature of the business with recruiting. Agreed. And so the STEAM and recruiting going into this next class, uh, the coaching staff's done a great job of getting some early commits. And, again, we can talk about recruiting as the season goes along, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. But those are the five, I think. Coach chemistry, team chemistry, style of play, I think three-point shooting, and, yes, style of play does include some defense there. I know we talk more offense because we like talking offense. And then uh, community support on number five. So that's my five big burning questions. Bold storylines. And uh, speaking of bold. Shohei Otani has taken the MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star game as both a pitcher and a position player. Shut up, Robert. No one likes Robert, except for Tyree. If I gave you... After I hear this. Okay. If I gave you that Tyree Robinson confirmed bromance with Robert Harper, where does that fall in bold predictions? Would you, If we bold predicted bromance, Harper, Robinson... Oh, that's got to be a fail, right? There's I would no way we say had that. that. I'm just happy that Robert has a friend outside of you. That's fair. So that's good. Yeah, he really doesn't have much. That's okay. So uh, we're gonna close and just get out of here, right? Uh, one guy got one. One guy got one. Uh, 200 plus rushing yards for ETSU. And you 200 on the nose. On I'm gonna go back and listen to the, the tape to make sure you didn't say more than 200. The nose. Because if it's more than 200, that ain't a bold prediction, correct? 200 or more. Uh, New England over Tampa Bay is what you said. I said Tampa Bay by 20 or more. Nick Folk is an idiot. Go. Kansas State over Oklahoma. You did not get that. I did not get Utah State over BYU. And probably the stupidest bold prediction of all time, I tried to name the exact score of the TSU game, 31 to 14. Actually got relatively close within a score of each, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not actually that close, 27 to 21 the final. So I have dropped to... One and twelve this year. You are six and seven. I'm absolutely shellacked. Shellacked. It's the way it should go. Bold predictions early. No, no, I don't know. I don't know. Let's go right away. All right, Thursday preview this weekend. Citadel and ETSU on the Buckeyes Network.